glad we can have some applause now. I don't think there'll be any at the end. Um, I was going to wear a suit this morning like I normally would at any other funeral, but I was advised against it. This isn't our passage, but I would like to, I'd like to put something on your mind this morning um, before we prepare. A couple weeks ago, uh, a dear friend of mine cleansing the temple, and I don't know, I've heard lots of sermons on that, you know, about, and a lot of them talk about Jesus' position, how, how he's angry at what's happened in the house of the Lord, and, you know, while he gets mad and, you know, fashions a whip and turns over tables, that it's okay because his anger is righteous. And I think a lot of times I've heard people say, well, their anger is righteous in the same way. But this was different. This took not the perspective of Jesus, but the perspective of the merchants and the money changers and the priests that were in the temple that had made it that way. And he pointed out something to me that I hadn't thought about before. About how before Jesus came in there, they had everything just the way they wanted it. With the money being passed and the sacrifices being bought and sold and everybody had it just the way that they wanted it without Jesus. Till he comes in there and wrecks it all. I'll tell you that I can relate to them. I'm a wreck now. It's a good chance I don't get through this whole sermon. And it's not going to be a good one, but it's going to be the truth. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Luke. It'll be up on the screen, but for those of you still carrying a Bible, um, we'll be in Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. And so to give a context for this, where are we at in the story of Luke? Um, it's a little towards the end. So it's after, you know, a trip to Bethlehem and the virgin birth. It's after the wise men come and go. Jesus grows up a little bit and, you know, gets, gets lost for a few days in the temple. Um, he grows into, grows into an adult and begins teaching and preaching in the temple and saying things that shock and amaze. And it's after he walks along the beach and calls his first disciples, calls them fishermen out of their boats, makes them fishers of men, Simon Peter among them. And from there, the ministry really begins to take off. And for the next few years, these men are following Jesus, watching as miracles are performed, signs and wonders, Sight is restored to the blind, the lame walk again, and he continues to preach and teach in a way that shocks and amazes everyone. He says things he's not supposed to be saying. And I wonder if some of those will be said this morning. And after a few years of this, but before... He goes to do what he really came to do at the cross. He and his disciples find themselves 
in the upper room celebrating a Passover meal. And after that meal is, is completed, they're reclining at table and Jesus begins to speak to them in a way that is to prepare them for what is about to happen. And there's a bit about how one of them will betray him. And they ask, you know, is it him? Is it me? Okay, it's not me. Good. And there's a bit about um, what they're to wear, you know, tunics and how much money they have to have and how many swords. It's two, by the way. Somewhere in the middle, Jesus speaks to his first disciple, Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this great burden you have placed upon me, though it is at times hard to bear. In this moment, I ask now that, as I pray, we all pray, that our ears are made quick to listen, that our hearts are made soft to move. And that in doing so, your will will be worked out in us. Amen. I hope you are praying for yourselves, too. Now, what's happening in these passages, or in, the, in these four verses? By my estimation, in verses 31 and 32, if we're to believe the Bible, we have maybe one of the most frightening verses in Scripture, followed by, immediately by, one of the most comforting. And it's enough to be jarring. It's enough for theological whiplash. But in it, there is something that has moved and convicted me in a way that is difficult for me to comprehend. What do we see in these verses? What is so frightening about verse 31? We see the truth about how Satan is real. We see how he is at work with plans and machinations for God's people. I'm sure we talk about the enemy often, but but that would re, that we would resist frightening thing that I find here is 
is what truly takes place. So the conversation is being had. A debate is being made. And so are decisions about faith and lives and faith. This passage is very similar to what we read in the first chapter of Job. And if you'd allow me to paraphrase, Satan finds himself, you know, in God's counsel before the throne and angels. And God says, where have you been? And the devil says, wandering the earth to and fro, walking up and down. The Lord says to him, hast thou considered my servant Job? There are none like him. The devil replies, yes, but does he fear you for no reason? Let me have a crack at him, and then we'll see what he's truly made of. And it was true for Jesus also, was it not? And that part I left out of the summary in the beginning. How after Jesus himself was baptized, goes into the wilderness for 40 days of prayer and fasting. And who meets him there but Satan again? Telling him what he ought to do, what he should do. And I want to tell you all the things you can do to avoid just a thing. That the same won't happen to you as it happened to them, as it has happened to me. I can't stand up here and tell you that. It isn't true. Because what happens here, what is revealed in verse 31, is that those decisions, that conversation that is had in some secret chamber, the the debate that took place and the decision that was made. It was outside of the earshot of man. Peter wasn't there to hear it or even defend himself. He was not even there to bear witness. All he has is the good and faithful testimony of Jesus Christ who's telling him now in a way that he seeks to prepare him. But what does Peter do? Peter rebuts. Vainglorious boast of a braggart, saying, Not I, Lord, I'll show you. I'll go with you anywhere, to prison, even to death. But we know what happens next. He fails. Now that's sobering enough. But to be followed by this comfort that we read in verse 32 about even in spite of it all, what does, what does Jesus do but tell him that though these things will surely happen, and you will fall and fail and stumble where you do not wish to, I have prayed for you that after this time, after such a time as this, you will return you will find repentance and you will come back not only redeemed, but to strengthen your brothers. In 
And while he, in that moment, can't possibly know all the details of what is to come, Jesus has shared so little. We know that Jesus does have a purpose. And Jesus has a plan. Even when Peter doesn't know it. Even when I don't know it. Even when you can't. And we're rem- I'm reminded of the words of Joseph nearing the end of Genesis. When he himself finds himself in truly horrid trials, hated by his own brothers, thrown into a pit by them, only to be hauled out by them again, sold into slavery, carted off in a cage to be bought as a servant in someone's home, where after such time he's wrongfully imprisoned. But after all this, after he finds himself elevated into the courts of Pharaoh, what happens but those same brothers come back a-begging? And when met with them, what does he say to them? While you meant this for evil, the Lord used it for good. And so here, while Satan has truly vile machinations, and while his actions are born out of a hatred and vile malignity, even that the Lord is using for good. Now this is easy enough for me to read, and only slightly more difficult to explain. But what to do with this? What are we to make of this? Well, the wheat will be sifted. Whether Peter, me, or you like it or not. It is a necessary process. Now, in preparing this message, I did all the diligent things that I'm supposed to do, you know, read it, studied, prayed, poured over commentaries, which are mostly unhelpful. (laughs) Um, Lots of people had opinions about that Passover meal when dealing with this passage and, you know, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And some gave their opinion on the debate about you know, the money and the swords and such, and what, what's truly meant. But on these four verses, many remain silent, save for in one of those commentaries in the margin, there was a small black and white picture. And the caption read, Woman in Israel sifting wheat. Now, I have been accused of being a redneck more than once, and I've never been confused with a farmer. I don't know much about the sifting of grain in the ancient world, but 
In that caption, it explained how this process that she was performing, all the grain that had been harvested was loaded into these sieves and shaken. And as it was shaken, the wheat fell to the ground. And the larger impurities, the sticks and the straw, remained behind in the sieve, where it was then cast out. And the grain was then shoveled up off the ground and loaded again into another sieve, where it was violently shaken once more. A sieve of finer mesh, where the dust and the sand fell through. And this process is done, and the wheat is shaken until all that remains is what is good, the goal of the harvest, the wheat, pure and apart from all others. All the chaff, all the sticks, all the straw, all the dust. But for the wheat, this is a violent and uncomfortable process. Some of you may know it. Some of you may have been sifted yourselves. For some, the sifting may be to come. For me, maybe some of you, are we being sifted now? What to make of this? How many times have you turned on the radio or a TV and saw the preacher man up there telling you how all the Lord wants is for you to be happy? Find little proof text in my Bible for such things. While our joy is found in the Lord, His happiness is not, our happiness is not His chief concern. And while we're being sifted in this way that makes us so uncomfortable and is often so painful, the Lord is working out our salvation. And I am reminded of what Paul writes. And how that very salvation is to be worked out with fear and trembling. And it will hurt. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not try and rush through it so. To not hurry the hurt. To know that it is in such a time as this, or the time that you've had, or the time that is to come, that... The Lord is doing a good work in us. I'm reminded of the story of Catherine of Aragon, a beautiful queen of Spain who was, for political reasons, married to Henry VIII. Um, some of you may be familiar with his life. A deplorable king of England living in times just barely preceding the Reformation. And while he was a truly terrible king, he was even worse husband. And at a time before he would be granted, in a time when he was not granted a divorce by the Pope in Rome, in a time before he realized that he could just kill the wives that he no longer wanted. Catherine, though she loved her husband and was beloved by her people, was sent out of court 
to a faraway palace in the countryside. And as the story goes, there, being alone, apart from her people, apart from the people of England that she grew to love, she fell into a very deep and dark depression, where one day her priest came to visit her, hoping to cheer her up, hoping to bring some sunshine to so many dark days. But try as he, as he may, he was confounded. Catherine, I just want you to be happy. And it was that day that she preached, that she preached to her priest. And she said, why ever for? For when I am happy, it is so easy for me to depart from the Lord. But in times like this, I'm forever reminded to draw near to him. And that's maybe one way of dealing with the hurt in such times. But let me tell you of another. What do we see here? What does Peter do? But looks at himself and says, I can do this. You don't know me. I have, Lord, everything that it takes to be who you want me to be. And like I said, what do we see but the vainglorious boast and hubris of a braggart that not only does not know the power of God, has severely overestimated his own. This is not the first time I've preached this sermon. Six weeks ago, as some of you know, I was invited to preach at a church across town, the same one that our regular preacher is at today preaching. And when invited to preach, I thought to myself, what a great opportunity to go do what I've been called to do. What a great opportunity to share what God's done in me with, with these other folks. This is the part where I make a fool of myself. I also thought that while I do love you all in this church dearly, I know that we're not looking for any more pastors here. And that while this other church had not yet begun their own search, they, needed, they need one. And if I could just go put on the right clothes, say the right words, impress them enough, maybe when that time did come, to hire their new pastor, maybe they'd think of me.
And as I began to pray and read and study and seek the Lord, I was led to these passages. My faith was shaken. As it's being shaken still, even now. I became beside myself, worried, and I was a wreck, and I was raw in the same way that I am now. As I couldn't get it together, and as the week wore on, and I thought to myself, this sermon's not ready. You're not ready. You can't preach it. You'll make a fool of yourself. And a thought came to my mind. You don't know these people. You don't know what they need to hear. They've never heard you preach before. You can't preach this. Pull something out of the drawer. Pull something you've done before. You've still got enough time to rehearse and maybe do a halfway decent job. And as I thought about what to preach, I thought back to a sermon I preached right here. But a few years ago, a sermon out of Hebrews 12 that some of you sat where you are now and listened. A sermon about the Lord's discipline. A message about Christian piety. And all the things that you should do to be who God wants you to be. And how if you do them right, some of these things might be avoided. And while rhetorically, exegetically, it's the best sermon I've ever preached. I knew that what this passage is what this passage has revealed to me is that it's not the whole truth. Sometimes it can't be avoided. Sometimes we will fail. And while it's easy for me to play back the tape and look to that preacher or that apologist or that man that wrote all the books that are on your shelf that you now know is flagged and fallen and failed, it's easy for me to look back and say, this is where they went wrong. If they'd just done this, if they'd only prayed more, if they'd only been more pious, if they tried a little harder, if they'd believed a little more, it could have been different.
that it wouldn't have to be that way for you. And certainly it won't be that way for me because I know better. I see that for the lie that it is. I don't know any better. I want to wear a suit and stand up here and impress you all. Tell you all the things that I know and all the things that you know, I've learned through the countless times I've read through the Bible, all the things that they taught me at seminary. Stand up here and unravel the Greek and the Hebrew for you, and maybe you'll be impressed too. The truth is I don't have all the answers. I don't know why there's so much pain and suffering. I don't know why sometimes it's more than we can bear. I don't know why sometimes marriages fail. I can't tell you why sometimes a parent can't love a child in the way that they're supposed to. I can't tell you why some of those children are beaten and neglected. I can't tell you why sometimes it gets so bad for some of us. We think the only answer is at the end of a needle or the bottom of a bottle. I don't have the answers for those things. I don't know why I can't be the preacher that I want to be right now in front of you. I don't know why I can't be the pastor that you all deserve. I don't know why I can't be the husband that my wife deserves. I don't know why I can't be the son that parents wanted. I don't know why I can't be the man I want to be. I don't know why sometimes I can't be who God wants me to be. I don't know if this sermon says anything about you. But I know it says something about me. And it's the truth. And I can't lie, and I won't pretend. That I'm any better than any of those other people that are so easy for me to criticize. So easy for me to judge their failures, their falling. Because they are all better men and women than I am. And certainly Peter is. And I now understand that there, but for the grace of God, go I. The hardest thing in all of this is that in this moment that I stand now, and how must it have been too for Peter? What's the difference between him and Judas? Sure, you know how the story ends. But in that moment, that dark night, after he's made the claim that he'll go anywhere for the Lord, he'll do anything. 
and then cowers in fear. But before his redemption, how does he, in that dark night of his own failure, know that he's any different, that he's any better than the one that sent Christ to the cross? How hard that must have been for him to see. How hard it is for me to see now. But Jesus prayed. And that made the difference. And so now I am convicted that just as Jesus prayed, I must also. And while I have always found it easy to pray in the midst of the catastrophe and brokenness that we find in the world, and even sometimes in our own churches, it's easy for me to pray for the church that is rocked by it. Easy for me to pray for the family that is hurt by it. But I've seldom found myself praying for for the one that failed. They can figure it out on their own, right? That was easy to do when it wasn't me. The Lord has shown me the truth that it is. It is me. So I'm called to pray with an earnestness of hope and compassion, not just for those who've been victimized by a sin, but so too for those who've committed it. Because this is me. It was Peter. And the hardest part is not just to pray, but to have hope for such a person. Some of you were there for a breakdown I had in a members meeting last month, or a deacons meeting last month because of this. And I described it as my faith being shaken. Just as the Bible promises. And it was the cause for much concern. There were people that came and prayed for me. And there were some people that followed up with me afterwards. And there was some concern that Rob is losing his faith. And the truth is, I am. But I'm not losing my faith in the Lord. I'm losing my faith in myself. And good riddance. Good riddance. I'm learning the same lesson that Peter had to learn. 
I cannot look without. I cannot look within. But to look above. To the author and perfecter of our salvation. But how dark those nights are. But there is hope. There's hope. In the prayers of the incarnate Son who spent time with Peter, not just showing him signs and wonders, but at times retreated from everything to pray for him. And that he prays for us too. Even in times such as this, I want to be sorry. Sometimes I fear I'm not sorry enough for pretending to be better than I am, for pretending that I know more than I do, for pretending to be an expert in something that I am not. when I should have been praying. Because if you turn with me to the 21st chapter of John, we see how that prayer is answered. How where after that dark night where Peter not only denies Christ, but fails to do the very thing he'd set out to do. And nothing looks as it should. And after Christ is put to death on the cross and risen in the way that we celebrated last week, where does the Lord find his disciples? But in that same place that he'd found them on that faithful day years ago. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, 
you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, we can read that and see that ultimately he does follow Christ to prison and even to death. But to get there, a faith and hope that he had in himself must be eroded and crushed as it is in me. And it won't look the way that he wanted it to, and it doesn't look the way I wanted it to. The Lord is at work. Not because of us, but so often in spite of us. Amen.